Hello, hi, and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. Every day we read four different passages from the Bible. My name is Calvin, and this is live from Cambridge here in the UK. Thank you for joining me today. We are looking at four new passages: Genesis chapter twenty-four, Matthew chapter twenty-three, Nehemiah chapter thirteen, and Acts chapter twenty-three.、Uh, why don't we begin with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for the newness of today and all the grace and all the hope that it brings.、Uh, Lord, I pray for whoever's listening. I pray for my friends. I pray for my family,、uh, for everyone back home, especially that、um, yeah, this will be a weekend that will refresh them from the inside out, help them to know your new mercies and your their new your new grace、uh, every day. Help them to rejoice with thanksgiving with all the good things that you do give us in this life, and help us to look forward to the new life, the the life that is to come that you give us and you offer us in the Lord Jesus Christ.、Uh, please bless uh, this reading uh, to our lives. Help us to internalize it, to understand it, and to think of ways to apply it in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so on to Genesis chapter twenty-three, twenty-four. Is it twenty-four? Oh, twenty-four. Okay, there you go. <laughs>、uh, okay, Abraham was old and well advanced in years. Yahweh had blessed Abraham in all things. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his house, who ruled over all that he had, "Please put your hand under my thigh." <laughs> I will make you swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, "What if the woman isn't willing to follow me to this land? Must I bring your son again to the land you came from?" Abraham said to him, "Beware that you don't bring my son there again." Yahweh, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, "I will give this land to your offspring," he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. If the woman isn't willing to follow you, then you shall be clear from this oath to me. Only you shall not bring my son there again. The servant put his hand under the thigh. Of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, having a variety of good things of his master's with him. He arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of the evening, the time that women go out to draw water. He said, "Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, please give me success." Today and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. The daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let it happen that the young lady to whom I will say, "Please let down your pitcher that I may drink," then she says, "Drink," and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher on her shoulder. The young lady was very beautiful to look at, a virgin. No man had known her. She went down to the spring, filled her pitcher, and came up. 
The servant ran to meet her and said, "Please give me a drink, a little water from your pitcher." She said, "Drink, my lord." She hurried and let down her pitcher on her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, "I will also draw for your camels until they finished drinking." She hurried and emptied her pitcher into the trough, and ran again to the well to draw and drew for all his animals. Excuse me.、Uh, the man looked steadfastly at her, remaining silent to know whether Yahweh had made his journey prosperous or not. As the camels had done drinking, the man took a golden ring of half a shekel weight and two bracelets for a hand of ten shekels weight of gold, and said, "Whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room in your father's house for us to stay?" She said to him, "I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor." She said, "Moreover, to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge in." The man bowed his head and worshipped Yahweh. He said, "Blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward his my master. As for me, Yahweh has led me on the way to the house of my master's relatives." The young lady ran and told her mother's house about these words. Rebecca had a brother, and his name was Laban. Laban ran out to the man to the spring. When he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's hand, and when he heard the words of Rebecca his sister, saying, "This is what the man said to me," he came to the man. Behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, "Come in, you blessed of Yahweh. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and room for the camels." The man came into the house, and he unloaded the camels. He gave straw and feed for the camels, and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, "I will not eat until I've told my message." Laban said, "Speak on." He said, "I am Abraham's servant. Yahweh has blessed my master greatly. He has become great." Yahweh has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, and camels and donkeys. Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. He has given all that he has to him. My master made me swear, saying, "You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house." And to my relatives, and take a wife for my son. I asked my master, "What if the woman will not follow me?" He said to me, "Yahweh, before whom I walk, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son, from my relatives and of my father's house. Then you will be clear from my oath. When you come to my relatives, if they do not, don't give her to you. You shall be clear of my oath." I came today to the spring and said, Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, if now you do prosper my way, which I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let it happen that the maiden who comes out to draw, to whom I will say, Please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. Then she says, Drink, and I will also draw for your camels. Let her be the woman whom Yahweh has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca. Came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew. I said to her, "Please let me drink." 
She hurried and let down her pitcher from her shoulder, and said, "Drink, and I will also give your camels a drink." So I drank, and she also gave the camels a drink. I asked her and said, "Whose daughter are you?" She said, "The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him." I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her hand. I bowed my head and worshipped Yahweh and blessed Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter for his son. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. If not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered. The thing proceeds from Yahweh. We can't speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as Yahweh has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth to Yahweh. The servant brought out jewels of silver and jewels of gold and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and her mother. They ate and drank. He and the men who were with him and stayed all night. They rose up in the morning, and he said, "Send me away to my master." Her brother and her mother said, "Let the young lady stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that, she will go." He said to them, "Don't hinder me, since Yahweh has prospered my way. Send me away." That I may go to my master. They said, "We will call the young lady and ask her." They called Rebecca and said to her, "Will you go with this man?" She said, "I will go." They sent Rebecca, their sister, with her nurse, Abraham's servant, and his men. They blessed Rebecca and said to her, "Our sister, may you be the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and let your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them." Rebecca arose with her ladies. They rode on the camels and followed the men. The servant took Rebecca and went his way. Isaac came from the way of Beer Laharoi, for he Laharoi, for he lived in the land of the south. Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the evening. He lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, there were camels coming. Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she got off the camel. She said to the servant, "Who is the man who is walking in the field to meet us?" The servant said, "It is my master." She took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and took Rebecca, and she became his wife. He loved her, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So there we go. Abraham arranges for his son, his only son, to find a life partner, to find a wife. But he says to his servant, "Don't don't look among the peoples here, among the Canaanites, and instead go back to his father's household and find a wife from there." And the servant says, "You know, what if the woman won't come with me? Should I bring Isaac back to your hometown?" And Abraham says, "No, no, no! Don't do that either, because he must remain here, and he must inherit all these blessings that God has given me."、Uh, and if and Abraham says, "You know, if you can't 
convince uh, the girl to come back with, you are released from my oath. So that's the arrangement in the beginning. Abraham is really old and he entrusts this task of finding a wife to this servant. And it turns out that this servant is a pretty stand-up guy. You know, he looks after his whole household. He's the elder in the house. And you see that he really sees Abraham's faith and kind of like mimics it. You know, he keeps calling God the God of Abraham, of his master. So he's still seeing it from afar. It's still the God of Abraham, not my God. But at the same time, every time this God answers his prayer, he bows down. He bows down so many times. It must be so awkward. Rebecca gives him water. He bows down. Laban says, okay, he bows down. He keeps, he keeps bowing down and worshiping God. And I think at each step of the way, he's, try, he's beginning to see just how gracious and powerful and faithful God is to his master Abraham and to himself. And it's interesting that it's so instinctive for this servant to pray. So he goes to this distant land and he actually prays to God, you know, Yahweh, the God of my master, please give me success today. He's praying in his heart, but he is, I mean, he realizes it's not just a job to do, but only God can do this amazing thing. Now, what he asks for is quite specific. <laughs> How do you put that? He says, the girl that comes out here offers me a drink, offers my camels a drink. You know, let that be the one. You know, it's so uh, happenstance. It's so coincidental. Uh, but at the same time, I think what he's looking for is character. A girl who will offer this drink, who will be gracious. And, you know, almost, almost without, you know, any criteria, you know, someone who would just show the same kindness to him that God has shown to his master Abraham. So that's in that sense, what he's looking for in terms of this future wife or his master's son is the same graciousness, the same kindness that God has and that he's asking God to show to him. You know, that's why that's why this business with giving a drink and giving a drink and giving a drink. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. He's looking for the same kindness in this girl. And indeed, you know, Rebecca turns out to be beautiful, especially in character. You know, she was beautiful to look at, yes, but she was also beautiful in terms of her kindness and her graciousness to this stranger, no doubt. You know, she had no idea who he was. No, she didn't know that he was looking for a future wife for his master's son. All she saw was this stranger who needed water. And she poured this, you know, she, she filled it from a pitcher. She had, she had, you know, it's heavy. She had to do this job, but she went out of her way to be gracious. And I think that was a quality, I think, that um, perhaps Abraham hinted at, but Abraham didn't specify. I think Abraham was just worried that... Uh, the, the people in the land he was living in would lead him away from God, lead his son away from God, sorry. But I think uh, here we see that, you know, faithfulness is always paired with kindness. Faithfulness to God is always paired with graciousness and love towards his people. And so um, he, he, he tells her the whole story that he's looking for a master's, his master's husband's, master's, master's, son's future wife <laughs> and but he only does this after everything is done after the camels have done drinking and then he just takes out all this gold and puts it on her 
hands and later on he says put it on her nose as well and then he says whose daughter are you she must have been so shocked no i just gave you water and you're giving me this gold and then he tells her you know what he's there for you know uh uh you know she 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 still plays it pretty cool i've got to say you know this must have been so shocking and you know to suddenly go out for water and come back with a future husband but you know she she plays it cool she runs back home tells her mom tells her brother who seems to be the head of the household you know uh bethuel is her dad but you know laban seems to be doing all the talking and when he saw you know wow what's happening why, why do you have this bling on you bracelets and then he said this is the man that has that has come to me and then so he meets the man and um and he treats him you know very very hospitably you know looks after him gives him food but then he but then the man says okay i won't eat until i tell you why i'm here and he repeats the entire long passage and that's why it seems really really long but i think the reason why he does this uh, the reason why he rehashes this is just that it's so amazing you know it's kind of like if today really god has done something that's an answer to prayer for you I'm not sure. Maybe you, in your heart, you know, you really pray for God to give you that sign of grace. Maybe you're dealing with something, some big task that you're meant to do. You have no idea how you're going to do it, and God actually does answer you. You know, you almost want to remember it and to retell it in a very faithful way. And I think that, therefore, you know, when in the same way that we give testimonies in church, it's important not to be overly flashy i guess that's what i'm trying to say I mean, he's so accurate he just tells it bit by bit exactly as it goes it is amazing in itself already that god has done this thing but i think that kind of faithfulness in just rehashing and in a very detailed but also a very accurate way i think just gives more glory to god and without having to dress it up or you know whatever but at the same time as well, you know, um, he keeps bowing down again. And I, I wonder again, if <laughs> I bow my head, worship Yahweh. He keeps saying he bows down, bows down, bows down. And he bows down again and everything. And you see, he's just so humble that God has shown him this grace. So, yep, happy story. He finds this wife. And the next morning, he wants to go back home. The family are shocked, you know, let her stay for a while, maybe 10 days. But he is just in such a hurry to, you know, just finish this task um, and also I think he doesn't want to take God's grace for granted you know he says don't hinder me God has prospered my way so he sees like he's on a roll I guess you know God has prospered him and he wants to see it to the end he doesn't want to delay and so Rebecca agrees to go with them and so she follows you know again um, very very independent girl I would say you know she independently shows kindness she independently agrees and she goes immediately you know she there's no hesitation she follows this man to go and meet her future husband and um so on the way back isaac sees her and then he walks out to meet her and rebecca says who's that guy oh he's your husband <laughs> and so she covers her face and this is just i guess a ritual to say that she's about to become his wife and so and she and Isaac brings her into curiously enough his mother Sarah's tent and it says that he was comforted because of his mother's death that's the first time we see that Isaac was quite affected by his mother's death and somehow um, Rebecca becomes like a replacement for his mother's love 
Uh, there is no commentary here as to why he does that, but it does mention it very obviously. I'm not sure if that's entirely a good thing, but I think it does reveal his, you know, why he loves Rebecca so much. You know, there is this void in his life left because of the death of his mother. And um, it might not be a good thing. It might show that he's still attached to uh, his old household. You know, God says in chapter 2 to Adam and Eve, for this reason, a man and a wife will leave their father and mother. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And here there isn't that same independence that we see in Rebecca, that same initiative. But instead, Isaac is just trying to fill that same void that he has in his heart. And I guess we'll see this played out in the ensuing chapters. Uh, okay, all right. So what do we see from this passage? Well, we see a perspective of God from, um, from someone other than Abraham. <laughs> We've been following Abraham so closely, and he's so concerned about passing on his faith, passing on his trust in God to his son especially. But we see it in the perspective of his servant, you know, who really experiences the same grace that is shown to Abraham. And we see it especially also to Isaac, that here God is providing this wife for Isaac. And that's a way in which God fulfills that promise that Isaac will inherit all the blessings. But we also see Isaac's character that is now, you know, I wonder if he needs to discover his own trust, his own walk with God for himself. We started to see that Isaac isn't really quite his own person yet. One of the reasons why I think this passage is especially long, <laughs> it, it, is, it took quite long to read, isn't it? And so it's quite challenging to do for a Bible study. You'll take like 15 minutes just to read the passage. Uh, but I think it's because this is the first time there, there is this kind of like match make, match made a marriage that you see in the previously you just see that they just got married you know Abraham already had Sarah, he was already married to Sarah but here is the first time that there is this union and how does God provide then this provision of a life partner and indeed a family who will inherit all the blessings of Abraham and you see that God takes it very very seriously that all these blessings come to him as part of this family blessing but also that it comes down the generations that Abraham's faithfulness is almost passed down to his servant to Isaac through Rebecca and it's it's a kind of faithfulness that just that is passed on and we've seen that already in the past few chapters that Abraham's so concerned that it doesn't just end with himself with his death and so it's a legacy it's a it's a faithfulness that's seen through many many generations not just through Abraham and I guess it's a concern especially in the book of Genesis that you know other people down the line learn to walk with god the same way that you have just a lesson there for us in churches that are faithful that do know god that do know god's grace is to think how then will this grace pass on to the next generation how then will other people aside from those who've already been blessed so much by god receive that same blessing that same experience of god's faithfulness and learn to trust him all in, in their own lives, in their own walk, in their own, um, in their own relationship with God. Okay, all right, so that's Genesis chapter 24. Let's move on to Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. 
All things, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, observe and do, but don't do their works. For they say, and don't do. For they bind heavy burdens that are grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not lift a finger to help them. But they do all their works to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge their fringes of their garments and love the places of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, the salutations in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi, rabbi by men. But you are not to be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and all of you are brothers. Call no man on the earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Neither be called masters, for one is your master, the Christ, for he who is greatest among you must be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and as pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut up the kingdom of heaven against me, against men, for you don't enter in yourselves, neither do you allow those who are entering in to enter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel around by sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of Gehenna as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obligated. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? He who therefore swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who has been living in it. He who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have left undone the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. But you ought to have done these and not have left the other undone, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within, they are full of extortion and unrighteousness. You blind Pharisee, first clean the outs inside of the cup and of the platter, that its outside may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitened tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the tombs of the righteous, and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you testify to yourselves that you are children of those who killed the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you offspring of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of Gehenna? Therefore, behold, I send to you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, and from the blood of the righteous able to the blood of Zacharias and Barakiah, whom you killed between the sanctuary and the altar. Most certainly, I tell you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me from now on until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow. So much condemnation. Whoa, 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 whoa. Means like, damn. You know, Jesus pronouncing this curse on scribes and on Pharisees, on theologians and on practical priests. You know, these are people who teach the law. Scribes are, are experts in the law. You know, they are the ones who interpret it, who study it, who spend their whole lives, you know, just reading, 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 you know, like, you know, theologians, people who do PhDs in the Bible. And the Pharisees, they're practical uh, theologians. They're people who think of ways to live it out. You know, how do we apply this? You know, how do we live out the laws of God in our own lives that really display how good God's law is? But Jesus says to them, you guys are cursed whoa <laughs> you know and not just because you are misled but that you mislead others you like to look good while doing evil so jesus very very i mean you really have to almost think of an equivalent today to get just how shocking it is for jesus to say a whole chapter of woes to all these experts in the Bible. That's who they are. You know, Cambridge, we have the divinity faculty of Jesus pronounce a woe on that. Tyndale House, which produces, you know, translations of the Bible of Jesus pronounce a woe on that. And in terms of, you know, Pharisees think of the most evangelical, <laughs> the FIC. <laughs> I'm going to get into so much trouble for saying all these things. But, you know, I think, I think the most godly the most godly people in these places would, would almost want to think, I, I mean, I think of this in terms of, you know, Chinese church, <laughs> you know, uh, say COCM and therefore the Chinese church here in Cambridge. This kind of like hand in hand of teaching the Bible and living it out. People who have that authority and the position and that privilege who misuse it. So they have, they sit on Moses' seat. So they have this privilege. They're speaking from the, all the authority of Moses, the prophet. But the things they tell you to do, you know, look at it, but they themselves don't do it. 
They say, you have to do this, but they don't actually do the things that they say you're supposed to do. My dad used to have this saying, leadership by example, do what I tell you to do, don't do what I do. <laughs> and there's a lot of that going around. You know, um, unfortunately, you know, um, Asian countries have a reputation for people who go into politics, people who want to be career politicians, who do so not for the best interest of the people, but to get ahead to get business contracts, to be respected. You know, it's, it's a sign of prestige to be a, you know, to have a title to your name. And it, you know, imagine what, how good it would be, you know, if the people who led us, especially in the churches, were people who were just practically applying everything that he asked everyone else to do, just consistent, I guess. But I guess it's also the true that, you know, the more privilege you have, the more power you have, the more opportunity you have to abuse it. It's kind of sad, you know. I, you know, I, you know. I mentioned all these examples. I, you know, I, I think, you know, um, it's great that we have faithful leaders, and I think we do have them in the Chinese Church, in COCM, in Tyndale House, in Cambridge University. Yes, and even in my church, all of them. They are faithful and they are consistent. But because you want to be consistent, we have to watch ourselves. There's, there's a reason Jesus intentionally attacks these religious leaders because there's always a temptation. And I think the most godly of leaders realize that and want to almost be transparent and want to be accountable because of this privilege and this possible temptation and this condemnation that Jesus speaks to them. So anyway, so it's, it's, so it's not just doing wrong, but it's looking good while doing wrong. So there's this, this is really worth looking up. You know, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge their fringes. Let's see if the, the footnotes have anything. Phylacteries, or tefillin in Hebrew, are small leather pouches that some Jewish men wear on their foreheads and in their arm in prayer. And they used to carry a small scroll with scripture in it. So it's actually literally a small box. And then it's with leather straps. So they tie on their heads and they tie it on their arms because God says, you know, it's supposed to wear it on your heads and near your heart. Hence, so they wear it on their arms. And you see these straps going all around their arms. And in these tiny boxes is actually a written out pieces of the Bible to show that literally God's word is close to their heads and in their hearts. And so they intentionally make these things look very big. <laughs> so everyone can see, Oh, this is someone who really, really loves God's word. And the equivalent would be, I don't know, carrying around a Don Carson book or uh, an ESV study Bible, which I love, which I think is fantastic. But I remember it, it, sometimes it can be a status, you know, you go to Bible study and then you open up your ESV study Bible and you say, Don Carson said this. <laughs> and to make a big show of it that you, that you, you not just that you have this book, but you read it, you know, oh, you know, I, I, I learn from the best and I'm trying to go into really in-depth Bible study. And, you know, they make a big show of it. And this fringes, let's see what the fringes is about, tassels. <laughs> That's all it says. Uh, I think also the tassels are meant to show a devotion, you know, um, let's see. So this tablecloth, uh, it's, it's, it's actually a scarf and it's got tassels at the end. And I think uh, in the Old Testament, they're supposed to have four tassels at the end of their garments uh, to show their devotion to God. And it became a position of status. So actually the more um, higher ranking Jewish officials would have bigger tassels 
than everyone else. So here they enlarge their tassels to show that how pious they are to God. And they love, you know, sitting in good places. But actually, you know, it's all a show. It's all a show. And Jesus says, please don't do this. Don't, don't have positions of, you know, different levels of positions in your church. You know, just because I guess it just, it's just pride. Uh, it's, it is, an, I think that's why in a church like mine, you know, here in Cambridge, lots of professors, lots of doctor, this doctor, that professor, this professor that come to our church, almost all of them, uh, I think in fact, all of them just don't use those titles uh, because everyone would have a title. <laughs> but also I think it's because of this. I think for a spiritual reason that is just distracting. You know, uh, we almost want to call each other brother. We want to call each other, you know, a friend. Uh, but also to recognize in the end, you know, we are all submitting to the same authority, to God, to Christ, to our Father who is in heaven. So, yep. Um, and, you know, just, just be careful of exalting yourself, especially in church, in the eyes of your brothers and your sisters. And then comes these, like, I don't know, I was counting. I, I thought they were seven, but I counted eight. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, I'll have to look at this closer again. But here are all these woes that Jesus pronounces upon them. And really, again, it's making it hard for people to come into the kingdom of God while making yourself seem as if you're already in. So, so here they devour widows' houses. You know, here they shut up the kingdom of God against men. You know, here they are blind guides. And again, the theme here is that they're leading people astray from God. When their job is actually to lead them towards God. And again, you know, the temptation is to say, oh, it's those guys, it's those people. And I just want to caution us to think that this is possibly us if we ever get to that point of influence, to that position of power, that it is just in our hearts to want to make ourselves seem better by putting others down. And if ever, if ever you're in that position, you know, you just have to be so careful. I was, um, and I, I don't know how to make, what to make of this, but I heard uh, that the new president, uh, Biden, uh, he actually made his very first statement saying that if anyone talks down to someone else, kind of dismisses them, he will fire them on the spot. And already, I mean, that's, that's a really forceful way of enforcing this. Um, but uh, I think just that kind of seriousness that especially among God's people, not to, um, I don't know, just not to stand on your on ceremony, not to create all these positions of power such that, you know, in a church meeting council, you know, yeah, it's like a CEO sits in front, that's your pastor, and everyone sits in terms of seniority, and the pastor says, we are supposed to do this, and everyone just goes, yes, 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 just lots of yes men, and and if you're at the end of, end of the table, means you're the most junior, you're not meant to say anything at all, you just be quiet and go, yes, 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 and you see that in like Japanese, Korean, Chinese dramas, where the CEO walks in, and he's the boss, and that's the Pharisees. That's the scribes because of their position, their intellect, and because of their piety. But as a result, they cause others, you know, to be swayed. You know, they're blind fools. They, they come up with all these silly, and that's the thing. It's just foolish. They come up with all these silly, silly rules about you can say this, you can, can't swear by that. And they just make it overly complicated for people who just want to be able to, you know, take God seriously. 
want to be faithful in the things that they say and the vows that they make before God. Um, this tithe, mint, deal, and cumin, uh, it's meant to be a joke. You know, Jesus does tell jokes in the Bible. I'm not sure if you realize that. It's meant to be how, you know, uh, like imagine if for Chinese people, you have Tao Yu, you know, soy sauce. Imagine you say, 10% of the Tao Yu is for Jesus. <laughs> and say, oh, oh, that person must really, really be serious about giving everything to God. 10% of your income, but also 10% of everything else. 10% of my soy sauce, 10% of my, I don't know, MSG packet. If Yesterday I was eating mi goreng. Um, I bought Indomie. I bought, I bought a big uh, pack of Indomie and I was pouring in the Indomie packet and I was thinking, and actually I was, I was kind of like thinking of this verse. This verse brought, uh, made me think of that. And I was thinking, oh, what if I spared 10% of that MSG? Oh, that's for Jesus. I can't eat this. This is for Jesus. And then I bring it to church on Sunday and I put the MSG packet, I can put it inside the offering bag. That is how silly and how crazy and how over the top these people are. And they do this and then they ignore the bigger things, justice, mercy, and faith. It says, yeah, you, 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 you strain out the net, the small thing you will concentrate on, but you swallow a camel. <coughs> and I was listening to my pastor in Singapore talking about single issue Christians. And I think this is exactly it. You know, single issue Christians who just make the whole controversy of everything in church about that one thing. Which version of the Bible um, do you use? Or which kind of church do you go go to? Or uh, which kind of, you know, preaching? Or which kind of songs do you sing? These kind of single issues that everything is about the single issue. And then bigger issues like just being, being just, being loving, you know, being faithful. And you know, that, that's okay, that's not important. But this single issue is everything that we, are, we stand for. And, you know, um, again, you know, it, it just shows how current this kind of warning is. You know, I just heard this illustration this morning listening to uh, my pastor preach back in Singapore. Uh, let's, let's move on very quickly. Let's just jump to the last one. Um, da, da, da. Let's see what else. Um, yeah, he, he says, you decorate the tombs of the righteous uh, and you say, oh, if we, were, if we were there, you know, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. And Jesus essentially said, you're kidding yourselves. You are just, you are exactly in the line of prophet killers. <laughs> and indeed, you know, they will kill Jesus. That, that's, that's why I'm looking forward to. But it's kind of like the people who look at, you know, um, other Christians and say, oh, you know, that person, you know, that did that horrible thing. I would never do that. And Jesus is saying, wow, really? You will be worse. <laughs> That, that's really serious. Sometimes, you know, um, the strongest people who condemn certain things, and we see this in King David, right? You remember with, when the prophet Nathan told him about the story about someone who stole away that little ewe lamb and, Jesus, and David went, oh, who did this? And Nathan said, you are the man. And sometimes it's our conscience that makes us go, oh, that person is so horrible. When actually inside, you know, hey, you know, I would do the exact same thing. Just no, no room for grace, no room for self-reflection and own self-sin <laughs> realization before God. And, you know, you almost fill up the measure of your fathers. That means you, you, everything that they did, you, you complete in terms of their wickedness, their persecution, and their sin. 
and said, you are vipers, you know, who will, how will you escape from hell? Yeah, it's, and yeah, quite, quite serious, quite serious. Uh, there's also this talk about whitened tombs. Again, the idea of dressing something up that is despicable and, un and unclean, that by looks nice. You know, a tomb in Jewish culture, if you stepped on a tomb, means you got into contact with a dead body. And therefore, you couldn't go to the temple, you couldn't worship God, you had to cleanse yourself. But the idea of a whitened tomb is that you cover it up. You, you make it look nice and, uh, it, and, and it, it, looks, it looks presentable. And so you, people don't realize that they've become unclean by coming into contact with you. Yeah. Um, and at the end of it, um, Jesus, after all this condemnation, speaks to this city that does kill prophets, that does reject God, and still calls out to her, you know, call, calls out to uh, this city and says, why don't we repent? Why are you still doing this? And so Jesus himself shows the same kind of grace and mercy towards people whom he's just condemned. It's quite startling, uh, but it just shows how uh, merciful and how Jesus has come exactly to die for all these rebellious and stiff-necked and all these just stubborn people. But he really, really desires that we come back to him. And this is just so encouraging i guess if ever we come to that point where we go yep you know what actually yeah i i, I i've done this you know i've 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 just you know misused my position i've actually not taken god seriously enough i've forced others to do so but i myself haven't done that if we were to do that jesus would welcome us jesus would embrace us as a mother hen embraces her chick but as a but because they don't you know, what, or the only thing that's left is judgment. And the way in which uh, they will recognize that this really happens is when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is when they finally see that Jesus arrives in, in all his glory to bring both salvation, but also judgment, both, both together. Yeah, okay, so that's Matthew chapter 23. Well, I have no idea how long we've gone, but I know it's long. <laughs> That's what happens on Saturday. You lose track of time. Uh, okay, all right. Let, let's, let's, let's try to go faster, faster through the other passages. Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, they read in the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written in it that an Ammonite and a Moabite should not enter into the assembly of God forever because they didn't meet the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned a curse into a blessing. It came to pass when they heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. Now before this, Elisha the priest, who was appointed over the rooms of the house of our God, being allied to Tobiah, had prepared for him a great room, where before they laid the meal offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of the grain, the new wine, and the oil which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the wave offerings for the priests. But in all this I was not at Jerusalem, for in the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some days I asked leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem and understood the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing him a room in the courts of God's house. It grieved me severely 
Therefore, I threw all Tobias' household stuff, threw it out of the room. Then I commanded that they cleanse the room. So I brought into them the vessels of God's house with the meal offerings and the frankincense again. I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his field. Then I contended with the rulers and said, Why is God's house forsaken? I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the new wine, and the oil to the treasuries. I made treasurers over the treasuries, Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe, and of the Levites, Padiah, and next to them was Hanan the son of Zakur the son of Mataniah, for they were counted faithful in their business was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, my God, concerning this, and don't wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for its observances. In those days, I saw some men treading wine presses on the Sabbath in Judah, bringing in the sheaves and loading donkeys, and also with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day in which they sold food. Some men of Tyre also lived there, who brought in fish and all kinds of wares, and sold on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do and profane the Sabbath day? Don't your fathers do this and didn't God bring all this evil on us and on this city? Yet you bring more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and commanded that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. I set some of my servants over the gates so that no burden should be brought in on the Sabbath day. So the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares camped outside of Jerusalem once or twice. Then I testified against them and said to them, Why do you stay around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. From that time on, they didn't come on the Sabbath. I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and that they should come and keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me for this also, my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spoke half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. I contended with them and cursed them and struck certain of them and plucked off their hair. And made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Didn't Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women caused even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you to do all this great evil to trespass against our God and marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was, high, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased them from me. Remember them, my God, because they've defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from all foreigners and appointed duties for the priests and of the Levites and everyone in his work and for the wood offering at times appointed and for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, for good. Do you sense that frustration in Nehemiah's voice? He's going, ah, oh, one thing after another. He does one thing and they do another thing. And he's just so frustrated, trying to cleanse and cleanse and cleanse and purify 
especially God's leaders, so that they will be faithful to God. And each time they just compromise. And we find actually the two passages you read together initially in Genesis. You remember Abraham was worried about his son marrying a foreigner and leading him astray. That's happened here. <laughs> you know, initially you know that um, they they had to separate themselves from from all these other foreigners who are coming in. And by this, I think it means that they were actually marrying these foreigners. He had to, he had to, he had to warn them, say, "You can't be doing this." By the way, they had this exact same problem in at the end of Ezra. I think is it nine or ten? The exact same problem. Um, yeah, they had taken daughters for themselves from from the nations around the land. And so Ezra's time was about many years before this, so possibly like a decade, and it was still carrying on. You know. Ezra and he was so shocked that the priests themselves were intermarrying, and therefore it was diluting, you know, their worship of God. It was just carrying on again and again. But what really frustrates、uh, Nehemiah is that the leaders, the leaders are are number one in breaking this law. And this is again goes ties into the last passage we just read in Matthew, you know, where Jesus condemns the leaders. You know, you're telling people that they shouldn't do this. And then you yourself do this, you know, Eliashib, who is the high priest at this point of time, and that means he's number one in the temple. He cr- he creates this office for Tobiah, and gives him this, lets him put him put in.、Uh, <laughs> you know, this is supposed to be a place where there was offering for God. He just created an office inside the temple for him, and he did this when Nehemiah was away. So secretly, Nehemiah had gone back, you know, gone overseas to go back to. See、uh, see Artaxerxes and Babylon. So it is a long way away, a long journey, several months. And so by the time you come back, you say, "Huh? How come this guy has <laughs> now an office inside the temple?" And so he threw everything out. You know, he was so angry. How can you do this? You know, you are the high priest, and you compromise the most holy place in the whole temple. And then he just threw it all out, and he cleansed it. And and this really shows why. You know, he brought back. The the vessels of God's house. It means actually they took out stuff that was meant to be a place of sacrifice in order to make space for this guy's I don't know computer and his desktop and maybe his PlayStation Five and just compromise of the compromise. We see at the end as well that、uh, I think、um, this intermarrying problem. One、uh, so Eliashib's son、uh, was son-in-law to son Balat, so he married. <laughs> He married the daughter of yet another enemy, and so he was just. You can imagine. Can you imagine how funny it was? Nehemiah chasing this guy. Oh, you chasing you! Going to whack you! And he was just so so frustrated, you know. And these are all leaders. The, the high priest, the high priest's son, is a son-in-law of this other guy. The high priest himself gives gives an office to this other. This other enemy, and you know, and these guys were all intermarrying and just giving their children to their enemies, and such that they didn't even not being able to speak the Jewish language. They weren't able to, therefore, understand the Bible. They weren't able to worship God, and he was just so fed up with them. But at each point of time, you know, Nehemiah, and remember again, Nehemiah was not a priest. Nehemiah was just governor. He was just political leader, was trying to just set things straight. And each time, just praying to God, 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 please help me, remember me, and you spare me. It's, I think it's kind of those moments when you like bopian, you don't know what to do, and you just pray, God, please help me, like give me some chance, give me just some breather, 
and just that frustration of trying to sort out religious leaders, trying to get all these pastors to be faithful and to be consistent in their living, and this kind of like non-religious leader trying to tell how shameful it is. How shameful it is if, say, the Cambridge mayor, who happens to be a uh, well, he's not a Christian, but I say if, say, a Christian became uh, uh, the mayor of Cambridge, had to go and tell the church pastors not to. You know, to to preach the Bible, you know, to to actually continue on, you know, evangelizing, or even even uh, to tell them, hey, you know, you please keep doing mission. Please don't forget, you know, that there's this thing called evangelism and the gospel, and you know, telling us how shameful it would be if someone whose job wasn't supposed to do this was telling you to do this and telling him, hey, please don't spend so much time doing all these nonsensical things like making all these kind of events that have nothing to do with the gospel and you know, just focus on God. And you know, that, that's the way that God appointed Nehemiah and put him in his work. You know, he, he was the one who ended up cleansing, cleansing the temple of all these foreigners and appointing duties for the Levites. That means they weren't even paying their workers they weren't even paying their ministers to do this worship. And again, this governor had to come in to kind of like sort out the, the situation. It's just really, really shameful. But also we see God's provision of grace, sending someone who had that kind of concern, but also had the position of authority. I think in a sense, Eliashib being compromised already. If the head priest, if your head pastor is doing this, you know, who's, who can stop him? You know, who's in a position to do that? And God actually brought in someone who was in that position, a governor who was sanctioned by this non-Christian king to kind of lay the right kind of pressure so that they'll refocus everything back on God. Yeah. Um, interesting, right? You know, God's means of grace that he will even bring, you know, you you, you imagine, you know, the, the most ideal way is if a church goes astray, you know, a church no longer preaches the gospel. If the pastors themselves are unfaithful, you know, bring in another pastor. That, that's right, right? I mean, uh, you know, or, or, you know, get the church themselves to kind of realize this themselves. But imagine if God instead brought in, um, you know, a city councilman or just, you know, just a regular Joe who was from the outside, who was in charge of maybe just city planning and said, you know, why, why aren't you guys, you know, preaching the gospel? And he and kind of convicted them from, from the outside. And I think it's all the more powerful than that God does use all these means to kind of like inject faithfulness back into the church. Uh, we see why, because again, Jesus says sometimes, you know, when you have that privilege in church, it's just so easy to take advantage of it. And we see also why in Abraham's case, whereby if you're really compromised relationally, if you're so used to doing this, generations of just compromise in terms of your marriage, in terms of your own daily life, it's just so hard to break out of that cycle. And that's the end of Nehemiah. You know, you would think that you would end in this happy clappy mode. Oh, wow, you know, they've, they've, they all have this new temple, this new wall. No, it's just the beginning. Because at the end of the day, you know, after you set up all these programs, it's the people and their hearts and their faithfulness that God really needs to change and to rebuild and to start over with. Yeah, so that's Nehemiah. Nehemiah's uh, chapter thir 12, 13, sorry. <laughs> okay, last chapter, last chapter. Acts chapter 23. Okay, here we go. Paul, looking steadfastly at the council, said, Brothers, I've lived before God in all good conscience until today. 
the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Hey, that's that's the exact thing, same thing Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees. You whitewashed tombs. Paul says you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to judge me according to the law and command me to be struck contrary to the law? Those who stood by said, Do you malign God's high priest? Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. When he had said this, an argument arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the crowd was was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees confess all of these. A great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' part stood up and contended, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let's not fight against God. When a great argument arose, the commanding officer, fearing that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Cheer up, Paul, for you have testified about me at Jerusalem, so you must testify also at Rome. Uh, Let's pause here, probably because I'm kind of tired, so I just need to take this in, see see what's going on. Let me, let me, I, I think I need to go back to the end of yesterday's chapter to see the context of this. So Paul, he's speaking before, yes, the chief priests and the council. So he's... He's there. Um, he's arrested by this Roman um, guard commander, yeah, and and he's brought by them to sort out this issue. And he and the commander says, "All you Jewish leaders, you know, this is some problem with your Jewish law. You guys appear. I want to hear what's going on. I want this to be sorted out. So I suppose that this is the Sanhedrin." If so, these are the same, you know, high priests with all the priests and with all the, with all the theologians and all the leaders and religious, all these pastors, the same people who had stand, stood over judgment over Jesus, over Paul and over Peter and, and John, over Peter and the apostles again and again. They, they, they just the same people who were, who were, Ah, uh, they must be so fed up by now. Oh, why are these Christians? You know, they just keep talking about Jesus. And so this whole group of people appear now before this new guy, Paul. And so uh, Paul, the first thing he says to them, I, I stand before you, brothers, in good conscience. You know, I haven't said anything wrong or anything false. And immediately he feels this smack go across it. You know, and he says, you whitewash wall. And again, the idea of whitewashing is covering up, making something bad look good. And, and, uh, and here is a wall. Jesus was talking about a tomb, but here the wall is, I think it's some Ezekiel reference whereby uh, the prophets were saying, you know, oh, things are good. Things are great. Uh, hence whitewashing. Things are peaceful, but actually God is quite about to bring judgment. And so here Paul is saying, you guys are just trying to cover things up. I'm just trying to speak the truth, but you're trying to use intimidation. You're trying to use your position, your rank to cover up the truth. 
but then he kind of repents of that because he says, how dare you talk to the high priest like this way? I said, okay, all right, okay, I didn't know he was a high priest. And he shows as well that Paul, you know, does have restraint. You know, he is, he, he is hot on the issue and he does want to fight for the gospel. But at the same time, he wants, wants to do it in the right way, in a respectful way. And especially even to the high priest because it's, he, he is, you know, a ruler instituted by God, by God over God's people. But then he also, you know, he, 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 does, he does use uh, his intellect, his strategy to try to deal with this group. And I think it's because he knows that he's not going to get very far with them. And so he needs to kind of divide and conquer, I guess. I don't know if that's his strategy. That's, that's just my first impression. He realizes that there are two groups of people he's looking at. One of them is Sadducees, one of them is Pharisees. And the difference is, they actually tell us here, you know, this Sadducees, they say that there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit. Essentially, they only believe in the first five books of Moses. And they believe in everything self-contained in this life. There is no heaven because there's no resurrection. There is no angels. There's just God in this life. We live and then we die and that's it. But the Pharisees believe in all of it. And so they have the whole scriptures, they have the Psalms, they have the prophets. And so all of it with God's encounter with his, uh, with his people, you know, through angels and through, and, and through his presence to them. And especially all those promises of the, of the revelation of, of resurrection. And we find those in like Daniel chapter 12, for instance, that, you know, that God will raise up uh, all the dead to face final judgment. So uh, they believe that all that is real. And so, Paul says to these two groups of people, something that divides them, what he says is, it is concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And immediately go, ha, oh, because Sadducees, says, Sadducees believe there's no such thing. And then uh, the Pharisees say, yes, there's such a thing. And then the Pharisees, you know, they try to poke at the Sadducees and say, oh, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken? They just stroking the fire because they know they don't believe in spirits and angels but say what if an angel spoke to him so, <laughs> and you know um, Paul didn't mention anything about spirits so actually the Pharisees are almost taking his side and the Sadducees are saying oh you know this guy is, this guy can't believe him because he doesn't in line with their party beliefs but the result is they still try to kill him so he isn't quite doing this to get himself to safety but he is doing this so that you know uh, he almost exposes you know their 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 partisanship, their hypocrisy, you know, just how divided they are. You know, they're currently united against him, but actually they also have divisions among themselves. And so, uh, as a result, they try to kill him, but they also fight against one another. So the commanding officer uh, pulls him away. Said, "This isn't working. I thought this could be resolved, but this is just making things worse." And brings him back to the barracks. And Jesus actually says to him, you know, cheer up. <laughs> this, I, I think if ever Jesus needed to make an appearance to someone, I think it would be in this kind of situation. It shows that actually Paul was affected. You know, you think that Paul is this really strong guy who can say anything and then deal with any situation. You want to kill me, just kill me. But, you know, Jesus himself, you know, appears to Paul to kind of, you know, encourage him. It means that actually on the inside, he was affected. He was depressed. And, you know, he was probably fearful for his life as well. And what Jesus essentially says to him is, all this is happening according to my plan. My plan is for me to use this situation, you know, of conflict, or people want to kill you, but so that you'll be able to preach the gospel all the way to the ends of the world, that is to Rome. Let's pick up from verse 12. 
When it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 people who made this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse to taste nothing until we have killed Paul suddenly. Now therefore, you with the you with the council informed the commanding officer that he should bring them down to you tomorrow as though you're going to judge the case his case more exactly we are ready to kill him before he comes near sneak attack <laughs> you guys watch kim's convenience sneak attack that's what opa says yeah so they're trying to sneak attack on paul and they took 40 people can you imagine 40 assassins it means all of them with barangs and knives and everything ready to jump out at paul say and we won't even eat or drink anything until tomorrow when we kill him we promise you'll do this but something happens verse 16 but paul's sister's son his nephew heard that they were lying in wait and he came and entered into the barracks and told paul paul summoned one of the centurions and said bring this young man to the commanding officer for he has something to tell you so he took him and brought him to the commanding officer and said paul the prisoner summoned me and asked me to bring this young man to you he has something to tell you the commanding officer took him by the hand and going inside aside asked him privately what is it that you have to tell me he said the jews have agreed to ask you to bring paul down to the council tomorrow as though intending to acquire something more accurately concerning him therefore don't yield to them for more than 40 men lie in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse to neither eat nor drink until that means really serious neither eat nor drink that they're going to kill him that they have killed him now you already look for the promise they are ready for the promise from you so the commanding officer let the young man go charging him tell no one that you've revealed these things to me he called to himself two of the centurions and said prepare 200 soldiers to go as far as Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 men armed with spears at the third hour of the night. They count the hour from 6 p.m. so this is 9 p.m. He asked them to provide animals that he might set Paul on one and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote a letter like this. Claudius Lysus to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Desiring to know that the cause why they accused him, I brought him down to the council. I found him to be a curse, accused about questions of, of their law, but not to be charged with anything worthy of death or of imprisonment. When I was told that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him to you immediately, charging his accusers also to bring their accusation against him before you. Farewell. So the soldiers, carrying out their order, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But on the next day, they left the horsemen to go with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. When he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you fully when your accusers also arrive. He commanded that he be kept in Herod's palace. So there's this kind of like providential kind of funny story of these 40 guys and you kind of wonder you know they vowed that we won't eat anything until we kill paul but ha ah, you know thwarted their their plans because the nephew tells the commander officer and the commander officer sends paul away to um what's this guy's name to to felix felix <laughs> away with with 200 guards can you imagine that and then and then 200 soldiers and then with 70 men on horsemen oh wow you know so really overkill you know he was you know he i guess 
these he just saw how serious the situation was. You know, if they're going to be forty ambushing you, you need at least double or triple that kind of number to deal with these kind of crowds. So, uh, but you kind of wonder, you know, what happened to these forty guys? So they couldn't kill Paul. Did they just die of hunger and thirst and? Ah, <laughs> oh, so Tom, yeah, don't make vows. <laughs> no silly vows. But I think I think they did. They probably went. Ah, oh, okay, too bad. Then they go eat Indomie after that. But here we also see, you know, God's providence. Because think of it for a moment. If these forty idiots didn't arrange to want to kill Paul, you know, Paul would not have been sent to Felix. You know, the he wouldn't have been sent all the way to this governor. And then all these other Sanhedrin wouldn't have been forced to go and appear before him, and then kind of like rehash all the evidences so that Paul would have to then preach the gospel to Felix. And you see, Jesus, really Jesus' words coming true. You will testify in Rome. Now Jesus is actually using these forty idiots, murderers, kind of like extremist people to accomplish his plan. So I hope you see that. And, you know, here, here is Jesus almost comforting Paul, you know, thinking, oh, everyone wants to kill me. You know, all these, all these guys taking vows to want to assassinate me. But Jesus is saying, no, this is all. This is all part of my plan. You know, don't be depressed. You know, I'm, I'm still with you. I am using these instances so that you will be my instrument to preach the gospel all the way to the ends of the earth. And, you know, to have that kind of perspective when you see the details of even his nephew, you know, finding out the details, but the bigger picture, Jesus is using all these details to accomplish his huge plan of bringing the gospel to outsiders beyond, beyond the borders of Jerusalem, all the way to the ends of the earth. And yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that's the big picture. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that during times that when we are depressed, when we can't see the woods from the trees, you know, you remind us that you are Lord, that your gospel will go forth to the ends of the earth. Uh, I pray for those of us, you know, especially our pastors, you know, leaders here in Cambridge who are entrusted with the gospel, that during times of discouragement, they will find comfort in knowing that you are with them, you speak to them, and that you will use them to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Please help us to be faithful. Help us to be, you know, as focused as Paul in always, you know, bringing this gospel outward and outward and not just keeping it in. Lord, there's a lot of um, warnings today about against, you know, compromising and misusing our positions of leadership, especially in the church, especially as religious leaders, especially as those who teach and practice the Bible. And Lord, please would you guard our hearts. Help us to be rebuked when we need to. Help us to repent quickly. But help us also to always look to Jesus, to find there you know, restoration and forgiveness, and to find there um, one who humbled himself, you know, one who did not take advantage of his position, even as God, even as the, you know, as the Son of God, but humbled himself and submitted himself to your plan, even unto death. And help us, Lord, to follow in his footsteps, all the way to the cross. We pray this and we thank you in Jesus' good name and holy name. Amen. Amen. Bye.